Welcome to Money Moves. I'm Samuel McCullough. I'm the producer and editor for Flywheel Podcast. And this series is an exploration of what is money and what does it actually mean to have money on chain. In the past two episodes, we've spent a bit of time covering the core attribute of what money has to have, which is the ability to be redeemed at par on demand. And then in the second episode, we talked about the taxonomy of money, about how we could think about different types of money in a broader spectrum across the entire financial ecosystem. Now, we're going to get into crypto money this week, and we're going to transition from a broader taxonomy to a more narrow taxonomy of money. And if you forgot already, a taxonomy is just a categorization system. And so this week, we're going to go through a taxonomy of stablecoins. Okay, now there are four categories that we're going to cover today about stablecoins and about what are the different characteristics that they can have and what makes them different from each other. Now, the four categories inside this taxonomy of stablecoins are going to be collateral, mechanism, price info, and governance. Now, there's a few other categories that we're going to cover at the end, but I don't think they're as important as those four. And I've also put them in terms of importance as well, too. Uh, the collateral backing is usually much more important than where you're getting your pricing info from, but it's also important as well, too. So let's start with the most important part of a stablecoin taxonomy, and that's going to be your backing. All right, so let's talk about collateral for a bit. Collateral's purpose is to create a lower bound on the redemption value. And what I mean by this is that, you know, if the price goes down, right, the, the collateral that is backing a token uh, should be enough to guarantee that some arbitrager is going to come and bring that price back up to a dollar. Now, the mechanisms in which this takes place for different stablecoins can be different, but at the end of the day, a collateral allows you to say with certainty that, hey, we have this much value backing this much value, okay? Um, and for stablecoins, like stuff that's pegged to a dollar, uh, it's usually easiest to use collateral that is a, a dollar, like cash, or just cash in a bank somewhere. It could either be physical cash or it could be cash in a bank. Or you could hold something that is like a dollar, but earns a little bit of interest. And this could be like treasury notes, short-term notes, uh, or you could even hold some longer notes. Uh, typically, I mean, there's accounting rules for this. Uh, you know, banks are required to, and essentially I'm sure the stable coins are all going to be turned into banks. So Circle is going to have to register as a bank. Uh, and so all their deposits are going to have to be these like short-term assets or cash, which are like easily liquidated into cash themselves. So like if you have some like three-month notes or like one-year notes, it's really easy to sell those back into the market uh, and you're not going to have any slippage there to, to get your dollars worth of value back. But it allows Circle to make a little bit of money on the assets that they have stored in their series of banks. But this raises another question, right? So let's say you're, you're Circle, right? And you have, I don't know, $100 billion of, of assets in a bank somewhere. I mean, that's kind of risky, right? You are a strategic target at this point where 
the bigger you grow, uh, the more, how would I say this? The, there's more incentives for a government like the United States to use your assets that you've created, like these, these USDC tokens, as a weapon against other countries or to either uh, maintain their hegemony in the dollar uh, through some sort of defense or offense. And I think this is a really interesting question, right? So let's just assume for a second that you know, Circle gets really big, right? So they have like $100 billion in assets right now. What, what happens to them when that gets to like $10 trillion worth of assets that they're holding for the entire stablecoin economy? Uh, who, who is actually holding that? What banks are holding that, right? That's a that's a big risk to to have it just in one bank. I know that Circle spreads it out across several commercial banks, but still, I mean, it's it's a risk that that we're all taking to hold these tokens. I mean, this is one of the chief complaints against these stable coins in general is that like as they get bigger, they become a bigger and bigger uh, political tool or a target for central banks and governments that want to maintain their their currency hegemony, uh, whether it's the dollar, whether it's the yen or the yuan or anything, it doesn't really matter. The bigger that something gets, the bigger the target's going to be. And I think this is something that like we in the Frax community are already thinking about. It's like, how decentralized are we? How well is our collateral spread around? You know, is the collateral that we're taking in in the form of USDC, you know, of course it has that risk, but once it goes into the AMOs and goes out, goes into the three pool, goes into curve, I mean, it, it just it should have less risk, right? Or at least the risk is spread around. Um, and so collateralizing, collateralizing creates this problem of storing large quantities of collateral. And this is especially true of, like, let's say you're not having a stablecoin that's pegged to a dollar. Let's say you have a stablecoin that's pegged to basket of commodity assets like gold and silver and a couple of other things all those assets have to be stored somewhere you know if you have a gold-based token which there are a few out there i mean there's some gold-based crypto tokens you have to store that gold somewhere it can't just be physical paper that you're trading that gold has to sit somewhere you have to charge your customers for holding that gold because it's expensive to hold you know to store gold somewhere you're probably paying a you know, 10, 20 basis points a year. And that has to be priced into the token over time. Uh, so, you know, it's not just as easy as, as putting, saying like, oh, hey, we're going to make a gold back token or we're, we're going to make a token that's backed by six different currencies and is like the SDR. No, it, it doesn't work like that, especially at scale. I mean, like, you know, if it's a few million dollars, like nobody really cares. But as you get larger, which is the goal for what we're trying to build at Frax, there's more and more issues that come up and more things that have to be dealt with at, at both the, uh, from a regulatory sense and then also from a security sense. And, you know, these things have to be thought about now, right? We can't, we can't just build and, you know, worry about it later. I mean, this is something that is core to the FRAX team about understanding, like, what, is this, what does it mean to have collateral, right? To have a, a collateral backing, right? What does it mean? What are the security risks and what are we going to do about it? So one way to be fully decentralized is to use crypto as collateral. 
And this is what the first version of, of Die did, which is called Psy now. But the problem with this is that, well, there's a couple of problems. So markets are really volatile, especially in crypto space. And so when you're using ETH or Bitcoin or anything else to create new dollars in the form of these leveraged loans, you have to have the ability to redeem that collateral that is being used at a dollar in case the markets go to shit because they, they always do like, look at, look at what happened with Terra, right? Or ESD or DSD or any of the algo stable coins, right? These are, these are tokens that had no collateral backing and people figured out the game and eventually they all went to zero because they, there was just nothing to backstop the price once confidence left. And when confidence leaves, the only thing that can sustain price is collateral backing. And so it's best to think about collateral in the case of, well, how collateralized are we? Are we over collateralized? Do we have a full reserve of assets that can be redeemed at value? So if we have $100 million worth of stables out there, is there $100 million or more of assets that can back up that price? Is it partially collateralized? Is it like Frax where you know, 90 cents in the dollar is backed by USDC and then there's another 10% that's backed by the exogenous collateral that's held by, by Frax? Or is there no reserve? I mean, is it something like Terra where it was just the L1 blockchain that was being used to create these, these dollars and there's just nothing there? So they're all good in their own right. I mean, like the, there's, there's definitely issues for being fully collateralized, right? Because then you're dependent on the collateral that you custody somewhere because all collateral has to be custody, right? You're dependent on your custodian to not be evil and for them not to lose your, your assets. Uh, same thing for being partially collateralized as well, too. I mean, we have to put our trust into curve and, all the other different AMOs where uh, the Frax treasury is deployed to, to not be evil and lose the money. And, you know, sometimes that bites you in the ass, like with what happened with Rari and Harmony and other bridges and <laughs> other lending pools where, you know, Frax has protocol and liquidity that's deployed into there and then there's an exploit, there's a hack, and that money's gone. And now you have to write it off the balance sheet. And if you're fully uncollateralized, I mean, that's the best position to be in. I mean, if you're, if you're fully algorithmic and you actually work, right? I mean, this is the holy grail. People always talk about the holy grail. And this is it because at scale, the largest threat is like, so let's say you can get, pe get a stable coin to work at scale that has no collateral backing. This is something that is the largest threat to the hegemony of nation states because there's nothing that they can do to... Uh, stop anyone from using this token uh, other than just simply cutting it off at the exchange level. But that's not good enough, right? People will still be able to access it and it creates a apolitical tool uh, where anybody can come and use this money. But for, for now, nobody's been able to effectively create that stablecoin yet. And in the most recent case with Terra, you know, they, they lost $40 billion worth of value in two weeks because their system broke. Um, so I don't think this dream is gone. I think somebody's always going to have a dream about how they can design a system that will be 
able to have these algorithmic stablecoins that have no backing. Uh, but for now, we just haven't seen them work. All right, mechanism, 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 mechanism. What are we talking about here? Mechanism is the way that we get back to one. So all protocols adjust supply when it deviates from the peg. It's just a, a matter of fact, right? If you have a stable coin and the price goes to from a dollar to a dollar three, for example, it's in somebody's interest to make more of those dollars at a dollar and then sell it into the market to make that three cents and cover the spread. Or if the price goes down to like 98 cents, then they should buy that and then redeem it for a dollar and bring it back up to a dollar. So number go up means more supply coming into the market. Number down means less supply going into the market. So this just assumes that arbitrages are always going to work in their self-interest to bring the value of the stablecoin back to peg if there is proper incentives to do so. Now, some systems only allow the users to mint and redeem. In other systems like Frax, the protocol is the one that mints new tokens into AMOs to meet demand. Other stablecoins like Tether or USDC uh, allow anybody to come and redeem into a, uh, an exchange like Binance or Coinbase or somewhere. And then that entity then goes to Tether or USDC and, and redeems those tokens. Libra, who is creating their, I think it was, yeah, Libra, created by the Facebook team, wanted to only allow a specific set of validators to mint and redeem. So the redemption can be a thing that is actually profitable for the protocol itself. So if the protocol is able to mint all the new currency, right? So if you allow people to redeem, but you mint all the currency yourself, well, then the protocol can capture those seniority fees, right? If there's any sort of um, uh, price discrepancies. So another way to, another mechanism that you can use to maintain stability is to have a secondary token which absorbs volatility. In Frax's case, this would be Frax shares. Uh, for UST, that would have been Terra. For Basis, you had your shares. And uh, yeah, so this just allows for a token in the sense, call it a volatile coin so there's a stable coin and then there's a volatile coin the volatile coin captures all of the seniorage profits and it goes to those holders so as the stable coin gets bigger as circulating supply gets bigger the volatile coin will capture all of that new seniorage somehow so in frax's case more frax shares is required to mint new tokens in Terra's case, you would need Terra to then mint a specific amount of UST, or you could swap it into UST. And uh, with Basis, you would have a share system where any new seniorage would go to the, the shareholders. And this works out pretty well. I mean, in Frax's sense, it worked. Terra didn't. Basis never really got off the ground. But there was Basis cash, but that didn't really work either. So while the dual coin does allow for some volatility capture, it's mostly on the upside. 
on the downside, you have to have that collateral backing, both the treasury collateral and then the exogenous collateral to be able to provide that lower bound in the price. Because if you just have a purely algorithmic system, it's really gameable. People, people figured out the, the Terra game and understood when there was a low liquidity situation that they could dump lots of UST into, break the peg, and destroy confidence in the system. In the basis thing, people figured out when they should swap between shares and bonds and what was the most important and most valuable. So if you have an algorithmic system, people are going to figure it out eventually. It doesn't really matter what sort of rules you design or what sort of backstops you put in place. People are going to figure out your system. Another way to algorithmically adjust price up and down is to just adjust the supply, like something like ample forth. Uh, I don't know if you call it a stable coin, <laughs> but it was one of the first where Ampleforth said, okay, let's say the price goes from like a dollar to a dollar ten. Ten percent higher price. What we're gonna do here is we're just gonna uh, give everybody ten percent more tokens. So we're gonna increase the supply by ten percent. That should allow for uh, people to sell immediately back into the pools and bring the price back down to one. And if the price goes down, we're going to globally decrease supply. So we're going to take the supply from down by 10% if the price goes down to 90 cents. Another way is through leveraged loans. So something like DAI, when it was first created, was an over-collateralized loan. If the peg went to the downside, people could buy cheap DAI and then use it to pay back their loans. If the peg went up, people were incentivized to put more ETH into the contract and, and mint more DAI. Uh, and this works out really well as well, too. I mean, this is a nice uh, system for maintaining the peg. A newer novel way of maintaining the peg is through futures and creating a delta neutral position where, you, let's say you have ETH, right? If you have ETH and you go short ETH, with uh, perpetual, so you sh you're long one ETH, short one ETH, you've now created a delta neutral position where your value is not going up or down, it's stabilized right at that price level. And since you have a perpetual, you can hold that position open forever. And more so, since you're shorting, typically shorts are paid to have those shorts open. So you actually make a little bit of money make a little bit of interest from having that that position, that, sta that stable position. And so what some protocols have done have, have tokenized that perpetual position where they say, okay, we're going to take ETH and we're going to short it using a DEX and then we're going to issue stable coins against that. So long 100,000 100, ETH, short 100,000 ETH, you issue $100,000 worth of tokens and then the protocol collects all the interest from having that position open. Now, the interesting thing about this is that it, it actually works pretty well until you get to size. And then maybe there's some questions about like, you know, is that short always going to pay money? And like, what happens if it goes into a deep period where shorts are paying longs right now, the protocol actually has to pay back money to keep that position open. So, you know, there has to be some way for value capture to, to work the other way where it goes from the protocol back to the the perpetual 
providers, the open interest providers. So every stablecoin has roughly similar mechanisms for maintaining the peg. I mean, mostly it just comes down to arbitragers buying cheap stablecoins and selling into expensive stablecoins. There really isn't a better way than that. And maybe people have tried it before to do something different, but really this is what works and it's what you're going to see everywhere. The third characteristic set in the taxonomy is price info. How does your protocol plus other protocols plus you know that a stable coin that's pegged to a dollar is actually worth a dollar? Think about it for a second. How do you know that something is a dollar? Where does that information come from? Who's providing that information? Is it secure? Can it be tampered with? I mean, this is a, a larger question about oracles, but it's a good one, right? So for something like USDC or Tether, there's no real need to have any sort of oracle, right? There's collateral that's in a bank somewhere. You can take your USDC and swap it back for the collateral in the bank at any time you want. So there's no need for any oracles ever. But if you're not a centralized stablecoin, if you're a decentralized stablecoin, like Frax, like something else, you're going to have to have pricing info come from somewhere. And so there's a few different sources, right? So you could go for an Oracle like Chainlink. Now Chainlink is robust. It provides pricing data to pretty much every single DeFi app out there. But who knows? I mean, maybe there's some exploit that comes along and allows you to manipulate Chainlink Oracles in the future to then exploit the stablecoin issuer. Now, I don't think this has happened, and I don't think this is possible, but if you're not using Chainlink, if you're using something else which has a, a weaker security guarantee, then it may be possible. Uh, another option is to crowdsource oracles. So instead of just using one, you would use, you would like an oracle of oracles. Now you're pulling in information from a bunch of different sources. Um, that's another option. Uh, another option which Terra used was they used oracles, but they only used a selected few oracles, right? So um, it was several oracles that were providing data, but they would choose the ones that they would work with. So it's it's somewhat centralized there. They would choose the ones that they know were safe and had good security, uh, and they weren't just crowdsourcing it from everybody. Now, if you don't want to use an oracle, what would you go do? Like, where do you get your pricing information? Well, you use something called a, like a, a TWAM or a TWAP price, and that's a, a time-weighted average price. So you could go to a Uniswap or you could go to Curve, and you could look at the past, I don't know, 100 blocks, let's say for Ethereum. You say, okay, what's, what's the pricing for Frax USDC for the past 100 blocks? And then you would take that price, right? Uh, and what you would say there is that it's too hard. You, sure, you can manipulate one block, but it's not enough to manipulate 100 blocks. That would take a lot. It would take way too much like expenditure uh, for too little of a game. 
And that's what a lot of projects use. I mean, you can go in and you can say, okay, with this, with this TWAP data, TWAP pricing, we can firmly say that this is what traders on the market are paying right now in our biggest, most liquid pool. And then you can use that to then feed back into your, all your protocols. And that's pretty safe. One thing that I've seen with the upcoming ETH merge is that uh, th there's going to be more abilities for the largest block producers uh, to be able to have multiple blocks in a row. So you could have two or three blocks in a row. And if that's the case, there's a definite possibility that you could screw with the blocks and manipulate the system in a way which you then could exploit these different protocols. Uh, so I've seen recently, just this week, some protocols moving away from the TWAP back to Oracle's uh, just for the merge so that they can understand this issue better. Um, I'm sure somebody will figure it out and we'll go back to using TWAPs again, uh, but it is something that's come up. Now, the fourth character set is what does your governance look like? And we could broadly say that governance can be decentralized where the token participants choose how and the direction of where the protocol should go. So in the case of Frax or, or Maker, the owners of the token, the FXS token and Maker, MKR, are able to make governance decisions that then affect the protocol at large. On the other hand, if you have something like USDC or Tether, those are not public companies, private companies. You don't really see what's happening behind the scenes. Uh, so you don't really have a, a voice in their governance. And that's okay. I mean, they should be acting in your best interest because uh, they just need to put a token out there. Uh, it Governance is usually something that's reserved more for decentralized protocols. So if there is governance, you have to ask yourself, like, well, how open to change is it? Is it actually possible to change anything about this protocol once it's launched? Is it a fixed ecosystem, right? Uh, what about the token distribution? Is the token distribution in a way where you know, only a small set of you know, two, three, four voters are needed to push anything through. Um, so this is something that has to also be looked at as well, too. So that's going to wrap it up for the four different characteristics in an, our stablecoin taxonomy. I actually pulled a lot of these from a paper, which I'm going to link below, that covered this way more in depth. It's a little bit older. It's from 2019, but uh, I think, it, I think it, the structure that it provides has been really good. Uh, and it's what we covered here. Uh, there's two other conditions that were added, characteristics that were added in this paper, which um, I think are interesting, but uh, you know they're they're subsets. So like, what are the fees for minting this stablecoin? It's like maker charges some interest. Uh, you know, other companies may charge interest as well too. So all this, all that can affect the peg as well too. Uh, and then additionally, what's the regulatory compliance? Is it something that's fully regulatory compliant, like USDC, USDT, Paxos, BUSD? Or is it a decentralized token like DAI, where regulatory compliance is um, fully on-chain, right? <laughs> fully decentralized. So uh, that's another issue to take into account. So that's going to cover this full taxonomy of stablecoins. Uh, please check out the written article that comes along with this as well, too. If you have any questions, come to our group, the Flywheel official group on Telegram. You can come in and, and chat with me and tell me if I missed something. Uh, otherwise, 
I hope you enjoyed this. We, we have some things that are coming up in Money Moves now that we've kind of covered the basics about dollars and all the different types, both in stablecoin world and in TradFi world. Uh, we're going to be moving on to the fun things to talk about, which is offensive and strategic weaponization of stablecoins and money in general. So we're going to talk about that next time. I'm Samuel McCullough. Hope you liked this episode, and I will see you again next week.